This week's TribCast is sponsored by Fort Worth-based BNSF Railway employs more than 9,400 people in Texas with an annual payroll exceeding $1 billion. And see how the Episcopal Health Foundation is providing funding, loans, and important research in a $10 million COVID-19 response plan for Texas at EpiscopalHealth.org. Hello, and welcome to the July 29th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by justice and politics reporter Emma Plattall. Hi there. Hello. Public education reporter Aaliyah Swaby. Hello. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. I am going to start us off by acknowledging to our listeners that I've come back from vacation with an additional dog in my household. And I'm only sharing that because he can be very loud. So hopefully it won't be too much to handle. Uh, But my apologies for the barking. Mm -hmm. Um, I also cannot promise that I myself won't be loud over the topics we're discussing this week because what a week it's been. Let's start with the latest in coronavirus updates out of Texas. We have known that the death toll from the coronavirus has always been an undercount. Not all people who died with coronavirus symptoms were even being tested. Uh, But we learned this week that more than 12% of the state's death tally was actually unreported by the state before Monday. Emma, walk us through these revisions and where that gets us in terms of the death toll. Yeah, so you're exactly right. The question for experts has never been whether Texas official death count is an undercount, but basically by how much it's an undercount. We got a partial answer to that question on Monday the state reported uh, something like 600 new deaths after it changed its method of counting COVID fatalities. So previously, the state had been relying on data from counties themselves, and now they are using death certificates to um, tally up those who've died. So we saw some significant changes. We Importantly, we have a lot more demographic information about who's dying and where and when of this disease than we had previously but it also meant that the death toll increased significantly. And so now uh, we're talking, you know, midday and Wednesday, we're approaching 6,000. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for months, the full impact of the coronavirus on communities of color in Texas had been obscured by shoddy data. We knew from national data that people of color, particularly black people, were being disproportionately affected by the virus. But there have been these huge gaps in counts with significant percentages of unknowns next to race or ethnicity of Texans who test positive or people who died. With this updated picture on fatalities, it shows that Hispanic Texans are now overrepresented among those who have died. Do we have an explanation yet as to why it took so long to get this data in in better shape? So... The state really is just pointing back to kind of the difficulty in reporting these data. If you look now, it's interesting, the um, the demographic information for Texas coronavirus cases is far less complete than the demographic information for, for coronavirus fatalities. In the um, demographic information for just people who have tested positive, the state is relying on reports from local officials, which indicate, you know, who this person was, 
and how they may have contracted the virus, all these types of different things. They have those reports back for only a fraction of the people we know have tested positive for the virus. So when you look at the um, demographic breakdown, there's something like one in five cases we don't even have a, a racial or ethnic identifier for that person. Whereas now for the fatalities, the information is much more complete. The testing is still full of holes too, isn't it? I mean, you know, in terms of, are we testing enough people to really get an accurate picture of where the disease is without regard to demographics for just a minute? And then within that, where it is with regard to demographics and geography? Yeah, I mean, that. sorry, go ahead, Emma. I was just going to say testing has been a problem throughout this epidemic. You know, lately we're reaching the goal of 30,000 tests a day that the governor set out months ago. A lot of people think that isn't nearly enough. And we know that throughout the pandemic in Texas, there have been problems with access to testing. Uh, we know that there have been more testing sites in white neighborhoods and higher income neighborhoods, for example. State and local and federal officials are trying to address that now, particularly with hotspots surging in the valley. But uh, we know that that's been a problem for months. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't stop thinking about these conversations that I had with public health experts months ago who made it clear, you know, this data, it's not just for academic purposes, right? Like, it's not just to write papers on the coronavirus for future studies. This is about having the tools to know where we have to target preventive messaging or intervention. Can we use the data to see communities where, you know, either the message isn't reaching people or where people don't have the resources to take those preventive measures and what needs to be done in light of that? And I think, you know, months into a pandemic where the decisions made by those in power have played out in a way that is disproportionately costing the lives of Hispanic and Black Texans, I it, it just seems sort of unreasonable that it's taken us so long to get a full picture of this. And you, you can't stop to think, you know, how much of this could have been prevented if any of this data had been collected in better terms before now. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm sure that it also contributes to like the lack of trust. You know, when you talk to people who are being impacted by the decision, you know, obviously I might be at schools, but I'm sure in any beat you could do this if you're on the ground. You find a lot of people saying, well, I'm looking at all the metrics myself and trying to do the math myself because I don't trust you know, the people in charge of, of telling me what this means for my life to actually report out what that means. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I, you could very easily argue that that shouldn't be happening, you know, that like people shouldn't necessarily be required to look at all the dashboards every day and like have their spreadsheets and things on, on how a deadly virus, you know, a virus that's been spreading for months at this point is impacting them. Aaliyah, yeah. what are you talking about? This is the messaging on this has been so clear from the beginning. <laughs> so on clear. all aspects yeah. of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The other point that public health experts make on these racial disparities is just that all of this was so predictable. You know, especially we live in a state like Texas where um, I believe Alexa can correct me, but the Hispanic population is on track to be the largest demographic share in something with like just a few years. Next uh, experts who study this could have told you months ago where these disparities were going to appear, which communities were going to be disproportionately impacted. And so if that had been a priority from the start, you have to wonder sort of what, what the difference would have been. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we we talked about this a little bit last week what, out of what we were seeing in Hidalgo County. And, you know, that is a place where most people are Hispanic. You there, There's no sort of like need to decipher the data because you can see the impacts there because the community is so uniform in terms of ethnicity. And you know that there are, you know, you feel the effects of living in poverty and being uninsured as part of the death toll in all of this. And I think, you know, the other thing that I've been thinking about is how, what this really underscores for me as someone who spends a lot of time with demographic data is how deep the repercussions go when it comes to the state's bad relationship with data. You know, we saw this last year when the state took this sort of imprecise database to catalog nearly a thousand, a hundred thousand registered voters as possible non-U.S. citizens. This set off a course in which some of those voters received letters demanding that they prove their citizenship to stay on the voter rolls. Days later, we learned thousands of those individuals were naturalized citizens and that the state should have known that. We're in the middle of a census count toward which Texas has put virtually zero dollars at the state level. And who are those that are, are most at risk of being missed? immigrants, Hispanic, Texans who Hispanics, Texans who are low income, like if and if they're not counted, their communities don't get the right amount of funding for crucial services they need that affect long-term outcomes for them. You know, obviously this is a more extreme example. We're talking about life and death here, but I mean, am I wrong in drawing the thread through these sort of data points in the state's bad relationship with data? Well, no, I mean, if the, you know, if the evidence is there, I mean, you can, you can speculate as to intent, I guess, but, you know, the results are pretty self-evident. You know, the reason the death stats are in better shape is because it's, you know, frankly, easier to count bodies than to count people who are walking around who may or may not have been tested, whose tests may or may not have been done right. I've got a good friend who went through the hospital and almost died. He got out. But before he went to the hospital, he had two negative COVID tests. Um, so, you know, the testing is not only not, you know, widely dispersed, but it's not um, highly reliable. Um, death counts are pretty reliable. And we see the results there. We saw the results in the Secretary of State numbers on elections that you're talking about on voter rolls. We see it all the time in health and human services numbers in, you know, uh, who gets which benefits and, you know, how, how that all sorts out. Uh, there's definitely a thread here. Well, it sounds like there are still sort of ongoing issues with the new reporting method. Emma, what have you been kind of deciphering or noticing in, in this new data set that we're looking at now? So uh, predictably, a lot of our focus has been looking at some of the counties in the valley where um, the death count is just totally out of proportion to the share of the population that those counties represent in the state. And you mentioned Hidalgo County already. That was one where we saw a really interesting um, kind of data question this week. So before the state changed this method of counting fatalities, they were counting more than 500 deaths out of Hidalgo County, which is way out of proportion with it um, if you look at its population. And after they changed the reporting method, the state is now reporting hundreds fewer deaths in Hidalgo County, which officials kind of brush off as maybe local officials reporting incorrect counties where people lived. But Hidalgo County is still reporting upwards of 500, nearly 600 deaths. So 
And local officials believe that their account is more accurate. So some of this may come out. You know, sometimes death certificates can be delayed. We may see these numbers grow on both counts as as um, days and weeks pass here. But you can just imagine uh, what 300 additional deaths in a county like Hidalgo, which is something like 90 percent Hispanic, if we're already seeing that Hispanic Texans are overrepresented in the COVID fatalities, you can only imagine how much that share will grow um, once those deaths show up in the state count as well. All right. Well, before we move on, we've got two more sponsors to go to. UT Health School of Public Health is changing the culture of health through excellence in graduate education, research, and engagement. Visit sph.uth. Edu to learn more. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Okay, well, speaking of bad repercussions based on state decisions, let's talk about school reopenings. That was a good transition. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of bad news, uh, here's everything we've reported in the last four months. You know, things are bleak, okay? <laughs> All right. Well, this week, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton issued guidance preempting local health officials' authority to shut down schools in their jurisdictions, as many have done so already. This led to another about phase from the Texas Education Agency on school reopenings. I cannot imagine what it's like being a parent of school-age children right now or being the actual children. Aliyah, uh, break this latest twist down for us. Yeah, so, you know, we've had a lot of, like, it kind of feels like watching a ping-pong match sometimes, and sometimes <laughs> it's like, you're waiting for someone to serve and you're just waiting and waiting. And that's kind of how it's been in this case with Abbott, who just has not really weighed in at all on whether he thought local health authorities had the authority to mandate these closures. And, you know, reporters have been asking him for a while this month and he never weighed in. And then yesterday we get a letter from Paxton from the attorney general saying um, local health authorities do not have the like state law does not allow them to um, shut down local schools to prevent a COVID outbreak. So maybe there are some things they can do once there actually is a lot of spread in, in school buildings, but they can't say, you know, because we know that it's spreading in the community, we're going to shut down all of our schools preemptively um, for a month or however many weeks. Um, and so that, you know, is really worrisome for a lot of the school officials who have been banking on being able to use that as a way to get more flexibility if they feel like they need to stay closed, but the state otherwise wouldn't allow them to stay closed, um, especially down the line as we don't know how cases are going. Um, so you have, you know, there's a, a San Antonio area superintendent who's already kind of mentioned suing um, or filing some sort of injunction. Um, there are uh, county level officials saying that they're still gonna put those mandates on and, and they're not gonna take them off. Oh, Emma just put up a, a brownie face on her on her Skype <laughs> for those who can't see. Um, reaction to the <laughs> and there's already a lawsuit um, in Bear County from uh, the pastors of a church whose children attend 
private schools, which are also required to close un, or which are also covered under the mandate. So that a lot of these uh, county level and city level authorities have been telling all public and private schools to close, which has caused um, some level of chaos as well, because while especially the larger urban public school districts and, and areas where cases are rising quickly want to keep their buildings closed and want to have more flexibility on how many kids they can let back into the buildings and when, the smaller private schools, um, while there's some diversity among them, a lot of them want to open up and they want to be able to do that um, you know, without the county officials uh, saying that they can't. So, so a, it's a, school may, a, school, <laughs> a school may open, right? I mean, if, uh, if the, on Paxton's reading, if the county health department says it's unsafe to open, he says the school still has the choice to open but can close if it wants to, right? Um, no, so I, so I think they have school, to follow. Mm -hmm. the, well, so you they, have to follow the state guidance as well. Like the education guidance says that you only get up to eight weeks to limit students who come onto your campuses. And after that, you have to let everyone on who wants to be on. Um, so the, pro the issue is when those eight weeks run out and local health mandate, local health authorities are still saying it's not safe, we want schools to keep closed, then the state has to actually come in and, you know, under under what Paxton is saying, locals can't actually do that, even if they feel like they need more time um, after the, the small amount of time that the state has given school districts runs out. And, yeah, I mean, isn't I, there, go ahead. Well, I, I just want to talk about the timing of this because we are a few weeks away from what would normally be the start of the school year. And school districts and parents and students have been stuck in this like back and forth of this ping pong, right? Where we're making plans for all remote instruction. And then the state says, no, you need some in-person in instruction if you want funding. And then the state says, okay, actually you can stay remote a bit, lo a bit longer than previously allowed. And now this guidance is coming, you know, really weeks after these local health orders started coming down, right? I think one of the first ones was at the beginning of the month. And so, you know, you mentioned that Abbott had not been clear on whether he supported or thought that those health officials, local officials had the authority. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it just like, I can't help but watch this and think about something we've talked about before in terms of if you do not have a clear message on something, it plays out in horrible ways, right? Like yeah. we've, we've seen Abbott doing sort of the, you know, local newscast circuit telling people masks are important. We need to be using them. They are a tool to fight this. And it seems like he is sort of making up for lost time when that messaging wasn't really as clear at the beginning of this. And, you know, if you extend that to the back and forth on schools, it just feels like some of this could have been avoided if we had heard from top leadership weeks ago when these health orders first started coming down, right? Right. I mean, I think all that we've had is the state education officials confirming eventually when they got asked enough times that yes they would um you know they would fund school districts that stayed closed under a local health mandate um and then you know people still asked abbott there were there were a lot of reporters including me who asked abbott and got no response and now that paxton has weighed in you have state education officials reversing on that you know i think that it's it's not just that it 
wasn't clear. It's that there was no response. You know, it wasn't for lack of being asked the question. Um, you know, and I think that's where that's where that that comes in. Two things here. I mean, one of these relates back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this thing. Uh, the state officials are, you know, they're all over the place, but they're also making their decisions based on the same bad, bad data we were talking about a minute ago. Um, and, you know, if your data says things are getting better and you announce a school policy and then 15 minutes later, the rest of the data comes in and it's bad. And then you announce another school policy. You're going to be all over the board. I'm also curious about this AG opinion. Isn't there a credible or arguable legal position that the law, in fact, does say a county health department or a local health department or local authorities can shut down a school if they think it's in the public interest and in the interest of public health? And yeah. isn't, there a lot, isn't there a lot of litigation in front of us here? Yeah, I think that it's it's possible. We, like this first lawsuit, you know, uh, with the the pastors of of this church suing, I'm sure will be one of several at least yeah. <laughs> trying to litigate this. Um, obviously, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how likely it is these are to go through. Um, but I do think that in the immediate sense, the TEA's decision is a bigger deal here than. I mean, the TA's decision was prompted by the AG's decision, but school districts cannot work without funding. If you say you're not going to fund them, if they do X, Y, Z, that means more than, you know, like at least in the in the short term, you know, for when we're actually making these decisions, that means a lot for how they're going to respond and how they're going to make their decisions. If it was just the AG letter without any responding you know, immediate consequences for districts that then, you know, didn't comply with with what that letter said, it would be a different story. But the the threat to yank funding, I think, is really what we're talking about here for how you're make how you're seeing people make decisions on the ground. And it's interesting, you know, the legal opinion from the legal guidance that came out of the attorney general's office, right? We can understand as this is the state of Texas's legal position. It's pretty, it's not a judge. It's not a binding ruling. It's not court precedent, but it's hard to imagine that guidance going out without the sign off of the governor, Texas's longest serving attorney general, who, you know, by all accounts is really interested in this type of issue and this type of work and is typically in close contact with the attorney general's office. But it's interesting that you see it coming through in this kind of hard to parse wonky legal document and you don't see it coming through in terms of the governor sitting down with a reporter on you know local television saying i believe it's it's safe for schools to open i would send my child to a public school you should send your children to public school which is presumably an easier message for most people to understand than legal guidance yeah i think i think you know to i hear you ross in terms of you're making decisions based on data that is continuously changing. But I think also, you know, as a leader, Abbott has not always been very clear or decisive in his positions, right? Particularly when there is some precariousness when it comes to where public opinion falls on something. You yeah, know, I, I think, think we've all, all, all four of us have written about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to say, I think back to the bathroom bill fight, which obviously is very different to responding to a pandemic. But, you know, it took us so long to even get somewhat of an answer on him on whether he supported the legislation that basically sucked all the air out of the room during that legislative session. And 
I can't, you know, as as we've been thinking about this and sort of assessing Abbott's response on all of this, it, it just feels like we have found example after example where there has been a lack of clear either guidance and or messaging to people at a time when if you're a parent, you're looking for that in terms of whether it's safe for your kids to go to school. If you are a server at a restaurant, you are looking for that in terms of whether it's safe to go back to work if you have an underlying condition of some sort. If you are just like an average Texan and want to know, is it safe for me to go out to eat with my family? And, you know, restaurants close and they all reopen. So what do you get from that? And I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's hard to make assessments in real time as because there is sort of underlying shoddy data, but at the same time, the messaging, even in light of that data or where it stands on that day or that week, doesn't seem to be clear. Yeah, the guidance has been messed up. I'm, I'm, I'm not um, defending it. <laughs> <laughs> the other trend line I see here is just this ongoing, for as long as I've been reporting on Texas politics, there's been this push and pull between the GOP-dominated state government and the Democratic blue leadership of Texas's biggest cities. And I've been really struck because I've had conversations with a lot of local leaders about how there are these kind of hot button political issues where local leaders and state officials kind of go at each other in public over issues like how to handle homelessness on Austin streets and property taxes at the Capitol. But a lot of them said that in times of true emergency, like hurricanes, like the bombing in Austin in the last few years, there has been a better sense of collaboration. And they are surprised that that kind of crisis emergency coming together of people who do not typically see eye to eye politically is not happening during this time. That it's being treated more like a political crisis than an emergency in the way that, for example, Hurricane Harvey was in terms of those working relationships. Well, before we go, I just want to uh, wrap this up by asking Aaliyah, um, where does this go? You mentioned litigation. I think I saw a tweet from or about Bear County Judge Nelson Wolf basically saying we're moving forward with our order to keep schools closed. Are we going to be I mean, there's not that much time for litigation to play out before you get up until the actual loss of funding for schools, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, schools have, I mean, the eight weeks does give you some time, right? And I do think that schools are planning to use that time to see, okay, how are cases going? Um, Today, there was a live stream with some uh, San Antonio uh, superintendents with the Express News editorial board, and they were talking about You know, I think um, the San Antonio ISD superintendent said he was prepared to, if it came down to it, at the end of those eight weeks, if cases were still high, telling parents he didn't think it was safe for them to come back and limiting the number of students on campus that way. You know, like, I think that it's going to either take litigation, some level of creativity, some sort of flaunting uh, state law or state um, guidance even, um, and, and having them be able to also balance the health and, and safety of their students and also their educational needs. You know, I think like what has been hard to continue talking about as we talk about safety is also the fact that so many kids really need to be able to be in school to learn well, like otherwise they're not going to learn at all. And I think that districts are trying to balance, okay, we have a small number of students, a smaller number of students potentially 
who we can have at schools, we can distance them out, we can have it be safer, we can actually follow really stringent health guidance for these students. How are we going to do that if we don't have the level of flexibility we need to limit those students coming in? How are we going to do that if a ton of a ton more of our parents want to come in than we think is safe? You know, I think that's like moving forward, it's it's going to be seen at the like higher level of like, how does this play out politically, but then also on the ground? Like, what does this mean for um parents who really need to send their kids back and and kids who really, really need to be back. All right. Well, that's all we have for you today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, BNSF Railway, Episcopal Health Foundation, UT Health School of Public Health, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. On behalf of Emma, Aaliyah, and Ross, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.